Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. We're joined again today by Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, for his weekly Global Macro and Markets update. On today's episode, Urian comments on the effects of the U.S. midterm elections on the market. He also speaks to the latest CPI report and the recent meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and China's President Xi Jinping. In regards to the midterms, Urian presents a chart showing the four-year presidential cycle. He says the first and second years tend to be the weakest and the third and fourth years the strongest. He says if you take a look at the years for the midterm cycle, where the markets were down, there is a very pronounced cyclical and seasonal pattern. He says continuing with this pattern, it might hint that maybe things have gotten as worse as they are going to get. Among other insights shared today with host Pamela Ritchie, Urian discusses inflation, commodities, and comments on a 60-40 portfolio construction for investors. Stay tuned for this and more. Also, per usual, Urian will be sharing some charts, so please head to at Timmerfidelity on Twitter to follow along. Today's podcast was recorded on November 14, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. To see you, Urian, it's been a really astonishing week or so. Some of it played out in that powerful rally um, last week. Kind of your textbook, like not the textbook, but the, the Timmer textbook. I mean, you have been talking about that for some time goes to the point that we've been making that, yes, the market was trading above its sort of rate-based fair value. And actually, we pull up slide one, you, you can see that. The first slide we'll look at today is equity valuation tweeted by Urian on November 16th, and that's on at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter. Even though that suggested the market was not out of the woods, and maybe it's still not out of the woods, we don't know that, you know, now that that we have a confirmed bottom just because the market ran so hard last week. But, you know, you saw that that spread between kind of the, the fair value based on where the, the two-year yield is, where the 10-year real yield is, where the Fed's going. And the, and the market had kind of persist, cons, persistently uh, traded a couple of points above that. But the caveat was always that, you know, that, that fair value, it's a snapshot in time. It's all based on how far the Fed's going to go, and then, you know, how quickly it will then revert to something resembling a more neutral policy, uh, and that it was kind of too late to be, you know, super bared up uh, on, on that basis alone. And, you know, lo and behold, if we go to slide three. The next slide is titled The Fed in the Market, tweeted by Urian on November 14th. And, of course, the CPI report last week uh, that we were all hoping for uh, for months now, but it, it was always elusive until last week where the number was, you know, uh, decisive, decisively softer than expected, both on the headline and on the core. And what you can see in this curve, in the Fed forward curve, uh, is a notable 
change, right? So the, the terminal rate, uh, the, the point at which the Fed will uh, will peak, uh, you know, will, will, will stop tightening, only went down a little bit from 5.11 to 4.85. So that's basically- about five, though. Yeah. It has to be psychological. I mean, just coming yeah. below that. Uh, so, so, so the market only unpriced one 25 basis point rate hike, but look at the, the, the back end of that curve. It's dropped by 50 basis points. Um, and the market now expects the Fed to cut rates after it's done tightening by about 150 basis points. And now that market could be completely wrong, of course, but, but this speaks to what we were talking about last week, where, you know, that gap between the fair value and what interest rates suggest should be the fair value, or the, sorry, the gap between the actual PE and what the fair value is, um, I think can be explained by the fact that the market is looking through uh, peak Fed, if we can call it that, onto a more normal neutral policy. And that kind of um, line of thinking, if that's indeed what the market was thinking, um, I think got a lot of vindication last week. And you see that by how much that curve has dropped. And all of a sudden, the math makes more sense that way. Um, and I so, so I think that that's kind of been what's going on. Um, and, and obviously, that number last week was was a big, uh, a big vindication. And I think technically speaking, there was all kinds of shenanigans going on as well, like the non-profitable growth uh, stocks. They rallied in two days after the CPI report. They rallied 25% in two days. Uh, that's not normal. Uh, but so it it just it just shows you how how much everything was tied down to the Fed. And and as I said last week, you know I I can sum up the market narrative in 14 words. You know one. Um, um, uh, the Fed is solving for 2% inflation, and two, the market is solving for the Fed. And so it just shows you how much everyone is sort of hinging on, on that narrative. I, would things have been different if the U.S. midterms had been different? Would we be solving for anything else in the markets? Midterms help, and and I just uh, created a couple of new charts. It's it, that you know the the election cycle is one of those things where every four years I I go deep and I you know go back a couple hundred years and I create a whole set, but then you don't update it very often because it's 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 only an election cycle, and then you know another election comes and it's like oh god now I gotta like wrap my head around this again. But if we go to slide 19, the presidential cycle slide was tweeted on November 17th. The seasonality of the midterm election cycle certainly helps as well. And obviously, we have the outcome, which is uh, not as red as, the, as uh, maybe um, uh, the political strategists expected, but it looks like the House will flip. Uh, there's still a few races that are being counted, and it looks like the Senate actually will, will stay uh, at 50-50, which means that Vice President Kamala Harris will get the tie-breaking vote. Uh, so either way, you're you're still in a grid, gridlocked uh, type of situation, um, and the markets, you know, tend to like gridlock. Uh, that's not a not a political statement, of course, but the markets tend uh, tend to uh, prefer that the government stays out of their business by regulating less. And of course, we we had some tax proposals on the table from the Biden administration, including the one percent tax on share buybacks. All of that stuff is now not likely to happen um, at all. And I think from the market's point of view, that's good news. And I think also uh, the Fed, you know, the Fed is still kind of cleaning up the, the I don't want to say the mess, but it's cleaning up from this kind of very large fiscal monetary impulse that 
clearly, um, you know, stimulated the economy in, as it was intended to, but also created inflation. And the fiscal side now being kind of removed from the equation for the next couple of years, other than a few maybe scary headlines about debt ceilings and fiscal cliffs, but we've seen that before, uh, and you know we'll see that again. But other than that part, I think this gives the Fed a little bit more of a clear slate to be able to focus on monetary policy without having to worry about whether fiscal policy is 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 getting in the way of that, like which would happen if there was more stimulus, for instance. But in, but in that chart, sorry, I, I kind of yep. led it up and then I didn't speak to it. But in that chart that was just shown, you see the four-year presidential cycle in the purple. Uh, and that shows that the first and second years tend to be the weakest. And then the third and fourth year tends to be the strongest. And, you know, the thinking historically has been that, you know, at that point, the party in power wants to stay in power. So there's stimulus, there's fiscal, maybe even monetary. Uh, that's been the thinking over over the over the centuries. But if you look at just years for the midterm cycle, uh, which is this year, where the markets were down, you see a very pronounced um, cyclical or seasonal pattern, which we already have, right? We already have the pattern where August, September, and the first half of October tend to be the weakest. And then from November to April tend to be the strongest. But that pattern is emphasized during these years where you have a down year during a midterm election. And so that's the pink line. And you see that that the market has basically bottomed right in line with that. So, uh, you know, again, the caveats always uh, all else being equal and, and all else is never equal, especially right now. But it's still it's it's one little one little hint that maybe things uh, have gotten as worse as they're going to get. Okay, so let's let's move to whether we look at the the crypto story of last week as sort of one large step in in the maturing of I mean a, a new area of the market is if you look back at other blowups that are similar is it is it that same idea that the strong will survive? Yes, uh, it, I mean it's pretty unbelievable that that these things you know continue to happen, and of course for the hardcore Bitcoiners, the, the, the maxis, this only um, is only vindication that, you know, you should never be in anywhere other than Bitcoin because all the other stuff, you know, is, 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 is too wild west. And, and I'm, I'm not going to weigh in on, on that, on that opinion, but, um, but, you know, we've had crypto winters before, of course, after 2017 with the ICO boom, the initial coin offering boom, which was, I, I hear in many ways far worse than what we're seeing this year, you know, with Celsius and now FTX and, and other others, uh, you know, Luna uh, and all that stuff. But in 2017, when that market peaked and we went from boom to bust from summer to crypto winter, I think there were a lot fewer people paying attention because Bitcoin wasn't really mainstream yet, right? So the ICO boom and crash was kind of like a, a story for really the the diehards, but this year everyone is aware of it. You know, crypto became a, a three trillion dollar industry, um, and of course, you know, uh, the, the 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 eyes of the regulators are are on that space. So this happening this year with these very big players, these kind of gold standard uh, players, no pun intended, um, uh, you know, is 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 big news. And I think at the end of the day. They will all get shaken out. I don't know where that's going to leave Bitcoin, whether it'll always in or whether it's still 
it's still coming. But my my sense is that you know this really drives home the point that the space really does need to be regulated, hopefully in a prudent, reasonable way. And and my guess is that regulators in Washington are looking at FTX and say, yeah, yeah, you know, we really need to start getting going on this. And and there are a bunch of bills in in there that are being uh, you know discussed. And I don't know if the midterms will accelerate that or slow it down. But my sense is that, you know, there will be another wave. There, there always has been, right? This is, this is the third crypto winter um, in 10 years or so. Um, and my guess is that that next wave will be the one where the whole space is now regulated, uh, or it will be by then. And I think that will create the kind of level playing field where institutions feel a lot more comfortable saying, okay, you know, now, now, now it's time to get involved. It wasn't, you know, I think they were ready to get involved maybe a year ago, six months ago, and then the, these blow-ups happened, and now they're like, you know, I'm I'm going to wait for the regulators to step in, so I know what I'm what I'm doing. Um, and then just one other thought um, is that it is, you know, it highlights that there's a difference between the technology, the blockchain, uh, you know, protocol. And the tokens, right? So, um, and and it reminds me of you know the tech boom and the dot com period in the late 1990s. That the promise was about the internet, and that certainly came true. But there were a lot of bad companies that went up, you know, tenfold or fiftyfold that ended up crashing. But there's also companies like you know Amazon and Google that flourished and are still with us today. And, and I think crypto is going through exactly the same thing. Like the, there's no question in, I think in anyone's mind that blockchain is going to revolutionize uh, the world, at least the financial worlds, those rails, you know, those decentralized rails. Um, but, you know, in order to get on there, you need to get into the tokens, which of course have these very boom bust uh, kind of characteristics. And that's the, 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 that's the roller coaster that has had to be navigated. Um, an area that uh, totally unrelated, but just in terms of some wild rides, in terms of momentum that we've seen in either direction, volatility that we've seen, where, where do you see momentum in the markets right now? I mean, do we go back um, to the commodities for this? Yeah, so let's go to page uh, 15. The next few slides Yuri refers to is rotation and the USD, retweeted on November 15th and November 14th, respectively definitely a momentum shift um, that's been already been brewing. Um, you know, we know that energy stocks, of course, have been very strong. But when you look at the winners after the CPI report, and, and since the dollar has peaked, uh, which is another chart we'll bring up in a moment, um, the, the leadership has clearly changed. So the momentum now is in not only energy, but commodity sensitive in general, industrials, uh, things like that. So in this bottom panel on this chart, I show the the 12-month range that these various groups are trading in, which are shown on the right. And so these are the value side, the small cap side, um, the industrial side. These are all the ones that are getting legs. And uh, let me see if where the dollar chart is. Um, the dollar chart is 14. And the dollar obviously plays a role in that. Um, and, and I think we showed this chart last week that, that the dollar was hinting at something because it was diverging against higher lows in the terminal rate, which is again, the rate at which the Fed is expected to end tightening. Um, and so the dollar was making lower highs, the terminal rate was making higher highs. 
And now with the CPI report, uh, the dollar has really, really come down. And you can imagine the kind of animal stewards that that creates uh, in terms of value, international, um, small caps, uh, commodities in general. Uh, so this is kind of the new rotation. And actually, this is happening at a time, if we can pull up slide 24, when um, you know, the leadership of the fangs of the large cap growth or the nifty 50, as we've called them, um, has clearly um, reversed. So I, I just had this chart updated. This is my nifty 50 study. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a custom study that I've done looking at the 50 largest companies in the S&P 500. And I look at their valuation, their earnings growth, et cetera. And the last few slides coming up are titled Top 50 versus Bottom 450, tweeted on November 16th, and Commodities, tweeted on November 15th. And the original Nifty 50, of course, was in the early 70s. That was the period where, um, after the recession of 68 to 70, uh, institutional investors were the only players left in, in the stock market because retail got wiped out, and they only wanted to buy the tried and true companies that will produce earnings no matter what. So that was the original Nifty 50, companies like IBM and Xerox and Colgate and, uh, you know, blue chips, basically. Then we had a second wave uh, in the late 90s, of course. Those were the, the, the big tech stocks. And then we had a third wave just over the past 10 years or so, you know, Apple, Google, Amazon, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you look at that chart, though, that there's a lot of symmetry there. And it looks like the relative outperformance of the mega caps um, has ended. Um, and so that leaves, that paves the way perhaps for a secular rotation. And I'm looking up the chart as we speak here, uh, slide 30, um, yeah, slide 30. And that secular rotation benefits everything that's on the other side of that tray, right? So uh, yeah. as you can imagine, the mega cap growth companies have dominated so much, they ended up being two thirds of the entire market uh, that as that now starts to come down, not necessarily because those stocks have to go down, but because other stocks are taking over the leadership, that leaves room for this chart to start to materialize. So this chart shows the commodity uh, index at the top going back to 1871. And in the bottom, I show 10-year rates of change for value versus growth, small versus large, commodities versus stocks. And as you can see, there's kind of a rhythm in that chart, right? Every 30 years or so, there's a pretty strong cyclical pattern. And it seems that, that those markets are all kind of ready to start moving. And so all of these things together tells me that maybe going forward, and maybe that's in the next bull market, um, maybe there's going to be a whole new leadership. That is so fascinating. I just, I mean, if... 30 years isn't secular. I don't, I don't know what is. So that, that, that's completely fascinating. There's a number of questions coming in. Let's tackle this one. It's, um, it's a big question. We need your big brain on this. So with Treasury General, the Treasury General account set to increase by year end and reserve balances to decrease, can you explain the relationship between the Treasury General account, reverse repos, and the equity market? Um, how will this tool be used by the Fed if there's a, a bit of a pause on interest rate rises? Oh, it's a great question. Uh, it's a very, very detailed question. So I, I don't think it has a huge impact on the stock market, but it has a big impact on the plumbing in the money markets and also the bond market in general. So 
what happened was uh, after the last election, when President Biden came to power, um, and then we had COVID and we had all the, the fiscal policy response, you know, the CARES Act, the stimulus plan from early last year, uh, the 1.9 trillion. Um, by that time, uh, the Treasury had a very large cash balance at the Fed. So that's called the TGA Treasury General Account. And there was well over a trillion dollars just sitting there, uh, you know, um, uh, burning a hole in, in the Treasury's uh, pocket, but it was sitting at the Fed. So the Treasury made a decision to um, use up that money rather than issuing new debt to pay for all the stimulus that came with the pandemic. Um, and that makes a lot of sense, right? If you have this money sitting around, why not use it? But it created a lot of issues in, in the plumbing because all of a sudden, Treasury is not issuing a lot of debt anymore. That debt is used by investors as collateral to, you know, in the repo market. So all of a sudden, you have a shortage of collateral. And this is why this reverse repo account at the Fed, you know, got into the trillions. And so it's, it's mostly, for most people, it's a sideshow. It's just you're either getting your funding one place or another. Uh, but it, it did have a major impact. And, and to the point of the question, when the Fed's trying to do QE or QT, uh, that plumbing can get in the way. So, for instance, I think, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think that last week the Fed's, the Fed's balance sheet actually went up instead of down. It's supposed to go down because the Fed's doing quantitative tightening. Um, and it's not because the Fed changed its mind that it's secretly easing when it should be tightening. It's, it isn't anything that, 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 that juicy, uh, but it's just that the ins and outs of the balance sheet are affected by these plumbing issues and this uh, Treasury General account. Um, but it's really mostly just a, a plumbing issue. And, you know, at this point, the TGA is pretty much depleted. So there's no more cash to be had. So if there's more fiscal, which there likely isn't going to be now that we have the gridlock from the midterms, but if there were to be more fiscal, uh, it would have to be done through issuing debt. Um, and, and so I think this, this whole story about reverse repos and all of this stuff, uh, I think is kind of, it was a story for last year. It's interesting just to pick up on what you said there, that, um, that there won't be more fiscal. Is that... What, what What is that? I mean, because you would think that, I know there's gridlock, but you would think that with sort of, I don't know, a near-death experience, like they, they held on to it. The Democrats held on to it. Why, why wouldn't they want to spend more? Or, or has the inflation story actually hit them well, as well? No, I, they, they would like to spend more, but without the House, you know, how regula how legislation works is that usually something starts in the House of Representatives, um, and then that gets discussed and voted upon. Then it gets sent to the Senate, and then the Senate will discuss, and maybe sometimes the Senate has its own plan that's different from the House. Then it goes back, then if it is a different plan, then it goes back to the House, and they meet together, the two chambers, to try to hammer out something that everyone can agree on. And if they do, uh, and the president is if of the same party, then the president then will sign it into law, right? So what we're going to have now is we're going to have a House that I think is going to be uh, tilted to the Republicans, but the Senate will not. The Senate will be 50-50. Uh, so the Republicans will get all kinds of stuff going in the House, including things that are, you know, like oversight on like Biden's family. Like it'll be like a lot of stuff like that, but it really won't go anywhere because the Senate 
will have the tie-breaking vote from the vice president. So nothing will happen in the Senate. So that means gridlock, and that means that some of the plans that uh, President Biden had about you know infrastructure and taxation, you know raising taxes, uh, that's all not going to happen at this point because the Senate, uh, because you know you won't have all the power resting. In, in the same party anymore. So that doesn't mean that's, that debt won't get issued. I mean, obviously, the government still runs a deficit. There is still stuff that needs to happen. But I'm talking about bold new bills uh, uh, that would that would have come out in the next two years that now will not see the light of day. There's been um, a very interesting shift on sort of the geopolitical stage. We saw Biden and President Xi of China meet today with smiles, with the handshake. I don't know. I found that kind of surprising. But um, here's a question, Yurian, coming in. Thoughts on the supply versus demand side of inflation. Will China potentially ending the COVID zero, zero policy have a meaningful impact on the next CPI print, I, I think part of the the leadership we saw last year, last week, in in terms of which stocks were going up the most, um, I think it, it, you know the the China story is part of that, and the dollar going down, of course, is part of that as well. But it, it sounds like China is is going to declare victory on zero COVID um, and start to reopen. And of course, that that's a big deal, right? China is the is the second largest uh, economy in the world, and uh, and so um, I think part of what we're seeing in the rotation in the markets is the hope and the and the promise that uh, China will start to reopen more. Um, and um, and at the same time, you know, that comes at a time when the the, the dispersion between the U.S. and China uh, couldn't be any bigger in terms of market leadership. And, and from a deep value contrarian point of view. If the global cycle starts to turn here, uh, because China is finally joining in, the, you know, the recovery that, of course, already from COVID that already happened in the rest of the world, you know, over a year ago, then you have this very deep value play, and you know, China I think is trading at eight times earnings or something like that, um, and then so in that sense, you know, what we saw, uh, you know, that you alluded to about uh, the two presidents, you know, finally meeting. Obviously, that's good news because this was not going in the right direction for a while, um, especially since, since since Russia invaded the Ukraine and you know, Russia and China are seen as kind of you know, allies on that front. So uh, any any kind of actual personal contact we see, especially with smiles, uh, is obviously welcomed. Um, uh, so there's a few things going on with China, and it speaks to the broader EM versus developed markets question. And so if you just look at EM rather than specifically China, it's basically the same story, but it's not quite as bad, but it's still it's still the same story. So um, and when I you know, we go back to that chart that we showed earlier, um, small versus large um, uh, uh, value versus growth, non-US versus US is or EM versus DM it's kind of the same chart. So maybe, maybe this is the beginning of the kind of rotation that I think many, many people have waited for um, and, and hasn't happened yet. So let's uh, finish, if you don't mind, on this question, um, investor writing in. So thoughts on fixed income, including high yield, actually. Um, are we getting back to the 60-40 is the question. Uh, you know, in 2018, when the Fed was normalizing policy, um, nominal yields, which are the black bars there, went well north of real yields uh, or inflation. Um, and then during COVID, of course, the Fed pushed rates way below 
where they should have been, and rates were like at a half a percent, one percent, even though you know tips break evens were already uh, getting towards two percent. So that's the financial repression uh, era. Um, and now, uh, because there really are no no buyers, or at least not until last week, in the bond market, because the Fed is selling, you know, the Bank of China is selling, the Bank of Japan is selling, uh, rates ended up pushing way uh, through uh, inflation expectations, and the 10-year yield went to 4.3%, even though the tips break even was only 2.5%. Uh, so that is a significantly positive real rate. And it's positive enough that, in my sense, uh, the bond side has some real some real value here. So we've talked about the 60-40 uh, in recent weeks, and my point has been that you know I don't know which which half is going to work, the 40 or the 60, but I think one of them will, um, and that's that's one more than we've had so far this year when none of them worked. And so I and and who knows maybe both will start to work, and we get we get a very nice uh, end end to the year. But that. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think at, at a minimum, the bond market, you know, especially around 4% with inflation now clearly coming down, as we saw in last week's CPI report, um, and but still the Fed pushing rates enough that we could be in a recession next year. I mean, we don't have to dismiss that possibility. Uh, you know, all of those things add up to me to say that at least the 40 has some real value. You know, I, I don't think the 60 side is cheap. Um, but but maybe we've seen the worst. But the 40 side, I think, actually has has some real attractive valuation. Yuri and Timber, thank you so much for putting this all together for us in uh, sort of a fascinating time in these markets. It always is. Uh, we wish you safe travels and we'll catch up with you next week. Thank you very much. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.